Hey guys, this is Casey, managing editor of Patagonia.com and The Cleanest Line. I still remember the first time I heard the monoboard back in 2007. Our blog had just launched and a writer named Fitz Cahal alerted us to his fledgling podcast. I was enthralled and even got a few chills listening to this new style of storytelling. We shared the first two episodes on The Cleanest Line and by the time episode three hit, Patagonia was sponsoring the show. It's been a wonderful relationship and a thrill to see the Dirtbag Diaries grow in popularity. So congratulations, Fitz, Becca, and Walker, on five years of the Dirtbag Diaries from all of us at Patagonia. With additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. The Diaries turns five today. And coincidentally, this is going to be our 100th episode, which to me is pretty freaking crazy. There have been so many good memories in the last five years, and the relationships I've developed have been lifelong. The impact of the people who have opened their lives to me, to us, has inspired my own pursuits. A lot has changed, and yet it hasn't. A half dozen core players now power the creation of this show, and yet the diaries is still recorded in a closet. We weren't quite sure what we were going to do to celebrate our fifth anniversary. So we turned to our contributors and our collaborators and our friends and we asked, what do you think would be a good idea? What should we do for this show? And the answer was resounding. We want to hear the story of its creation. So today, it's time to switch roles. Our intern, Austin Syadak, is going to step in and take control. And I'm going to tell my story. The story of how a struggling writer almost gave up on a dream, and then the idea that saved him. Because that's what this show and this community has done. It's given me a second chance at a dream. I'm Fitz Cahal. This is the Dirtbag Diaries. And I'm ready to be interviewed. So start the recorder, and let's do this thing. started you know where it's just a guy who's kind of frustrated about you know writing and not getting his best stories published so he just starts goes and sits in his closet and reads them into a microphone you know and you think about what that's become out of out of one guy in Seattle reading a story into a microphone and then putting it on the internet and it's it's absolutely incredible and it's I'm really grateful that I've had the opportunity to tell stories through it because it wouldn't have been something I would have done on my own at all. You know, I would not have been fits and gone, you know what I should do is take my laptop into this closet, read a story, put some music to it and, and, you know, throw it out there and see if it sticks to anything. This is Longtime Diaries contributor Brendan Leonard. That's the basic story. The one that Fitz shared with Brendan a while back, with me this summer, and with the people who stopped to ask him about the diaries. By nature, we like our creation stories simple. An idea appears from the void, and it comes to be. A light bulb goes off. The apple hits Sir Isaac Newton on the head, and bingo, the theory of gravity is born. They become sound bites, cliches, elevator pitches. In reality, creation stories are messier, more complicated, and far more interesting than their abbreviated versions. 
They are a sum of parts. Years of tiny decisions lead to breakthroughs. If you start to examine them, it becomes clear that ideas don't come from nowhere. They are rooted in experience. I have always wanted to be a writer. That was what I wanted to be when I was a little kid. I loved books, I loved writing. I'm sure I wavered a little bit when I was a kid between a pro baseball player and, and, and this, but you know, it was kind of like, I just always liked books. Like a lot of us, Fitz found the outdoors in his teens. He went to school for journalism and found climbing in his freshman year of college. I just didn't, I didn't understand that you could basically skip like a stone across this country and go to these climbing areas and you were going to tap into something deeper. It wasn't all 20-year-old kids like me. It was people that were 35 years old and were lawyers and it was people that were working as cooks and it was all these people that in some way had shaped their lives so that the outdoors could be a part of their existence. It just really, I mean, I, I don't know. It was, it was like a total eye-opener to realize there's this community of people out there that just wander, and they're not really tethered to anything other than climbing and being outside. Every, every time I could go and be out on the road, for an extended period of time, I would do it. That was me into my mid-20s. Those years had this do-it-yourself feel of like, oh great, our truck door won't open. Like, what the hell do we do? You know, how do we fix this? And I remember like going into the back, pulling out the climbing box, pulling out the, the, the hammer and a lost arrow pin, hammering this car door out so that we could open the door again. So for me, writing and the climbing were always, they were always tied together. Yet there was the feeling that climbing was just a hobby, that he had to be something more, a serious journalist. Climbing and road trips, they were a passion that would just have to pass. He got an internship covering state politics, and then he won a grant to go climbing in Australia. With that money, he hit pause on the career track for six months and headed down under. I remember I was living in this cave in the Murchison River in Western Australia for like three weeks. I'd been living in this cave, climbing in this area, living in a cave for three weeks in a gorge that's like 30 miles from the nearest town or whatever. You know, things slow down a little bit and you just, I just sort of realized like, it's okay for this to be, to be passionate about this. It's okay for this to be your life. Because I think for a lot of times I felt like, oh man, I got to go become a New York Times reporter. I got to, but at the same point, like what I was really passionate about was this community and the outdoors. And I think at that stage, it kind of, I just decided it's okay if you write about this. Like, this is pretty cool. With the intention of getting serious, he returned home a week before 9-11. The internet bubble burst. Things took a downturn. And right as I left school, all of a sudden, you know, I had an apprenticeship at the Oregonian, this newspaper, and it disappeared. Started laying off people that were older than I was. I was competing against people that had 10 years of experience. 
So like it was like it was kind of like all of a sudden this this career path of being like kind of a journalist was like shut off. I felt it, and at the same point, I was kind of like okay, and I just you know basically moved out of Seattle, stopped paying rent, kind of went and hit the road, and and I ended up you know kind of being out on the road, and then I just decided I wanted to keep writing, and so I just did the best thing I could figure out, and I started freelancing. It started to work. He wrote for a variety of publications, from weekly papers to tourism and climbing magazines. He stopped applying for serious newspaper jobs. He interviewed climbers like Chris Sharma and Tommy Caldwell. It was difficult, hard to make ends meet. He guided in the summers, but it seemed like writing about what he loved just might work. The gypsy woman told my mother Before I was born You got a boy child coming Gonna be a son of a gun Everything just tightened down in that industry. There was a year in 2006 where I realized I'd worked harder, I'd sold more stories, and we went and added up the taxes, and it was like I made less money. I don't know, there was this, this point, you know, basically in 2006 where I was like, man, this is, this is a pipe dream. This is like, you're, you're never going to make this. You know, because it was so clear that no matter how passionate was I was about something, being a writer was not going to work. I don't know. I think I was like 27 at that point, 28 at that point. I've been doing it for five years. And it was like, what the hell do I do with my life? The hard part, too, is it felt like it was forces out of my control. You know, it was just like the reality of what was happening in the media world. And it wasn't my fault. And had I been there, had I been six years older, I probably would have been fine. I probably would have been writing for people like Outside Magazine or whatever. Like I probably would have made it. But because of how old I was, when I came of age, when I like graduated college and all these outside forces, it was kind of like, I don't think this is going to work. Like it was like just dead obvious that the numbers don't pencil out. Ever since I met Fitz, he's been a writer. And it was always something that he per- pursued passionately. Here's Becca. He was still writing, but it was becoming more and more frustrating for him that he wasn't be able he wasn't able to take his ideas, the creativity the way that he wanted. To the point where he was still writing, but he also took the GREs and was thinking about going back to grad school. And I knew he didn't want to do that. And he studied for the GREs and he hated it. And he still took it. And I could j- just tell that his heart wasn't, wasn't into going back to grad school. He really still wanted to be a writer. And he really still believed in telling outdoor stories. There was no plan B in my life. I basically didn't have a job because I couldn't get enough writing work. I can stare at the wall or I can just start doing things on my own terms. And at some point I just realized like 
man, I have a lot of cool stories from living on the road, from being out there, from knowing these people. And I just thought I should make a radio show. Like I should follow this American life's template and turn them into this thing. And I'll make them and hey, maybe it'll be good for my resume. And at the very least, I'm not sitting here staring at the wall. I'm trying to do something while I figure out what I'm doing with my life. And it's making me happy. Did you, did you guys have a lot of conversations about starting the diaries? I, I don't even know. I mean, he was basically like, I'm going to start a podcast and I'm going to figure out how to do this. And I said, well, what do you need? And he's like, well, I don't really know. I'm gonna, I looked it up on the internet. And so I ordered, you know, this mic and this headset and, and something else to make it. And I mean, he made it all sound pretty simple. It, it wasn't that much money. So if it, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't work, it, it's fine. I was like... Okay. I think at some point, like literally, like right as I was messing around, the podcast guide for dummies or whatever it's called, like podcasting for dummies came out. Like people walk in and see podcasting for dummies and you're like, yeah. There was like one day I wrote the mono board and, and then I remember taking it and like figuring out how to record it and like, you know, pulling out my old stuff from like when I was young and into music and stuff like that. And, you know, I had a, like a little microphone and like throwing stuff into the closet and like doing this and the recording was totally crappy. And I think you can hear like cars driving by because we lived kind of on a ma major road and I was making it up and I didn't care and there was no grand vision. It was just for me and it was just for my friends. when I was having to go in and remind him that, hey, maybe you should eat. Hey, do you, do you want dinner? Because I'm hungry. <laughs> and I've been working all day too. Um, I knew that he'd at least hit upon something that he was really excited about. And whether it reached a broader appeal, that was you know, to be seen. I just, I will never forget that feeling of like clicking the button to publish that first episode and then like going to see if it actually worked on iTunes and seeing like the, the little ball or the bar download, you know, the download bar kind of feed through and then seeing it show up on my iTunes and just being like, that is freaking cool. Like, like that was just really neat. So I just sent an email to like 20 of my friends you know, some of them really from the outdoor community, some of them just like my friends being like, look, I made this, check it out. I sent this link out and it goes out. You know, the next thing you do is if you're, you make stuff online is you go look at your stats, you know, like you get crazy. Like you'll go, if you, if you, if you start something online, you just start geeking out on stats, especially the first few times. You're just like, no way. And you see it and you're like, well, has anyone listened? And it would be like, you know, I'd check back every 20 minutes and be like, one of my friends had listened. And then something happened. It was like, you know, I started getting emails back, obviously, but then, then you saw it on the stats as it was like, it was like my friends were sharing it. And this was like pre-Facebook days. Like, it's not like Facebook existed at that stage, but most of us didn't have accounts. Like, unless you were in college, you just didn't have an account. You know, by the end of the second or third day, there were like 300 downloads. And then it was like, 
there were a thousand downloads and it was kind of just like holy cow like who are these people that are listening to this thing like whoa I just did something that all of a sudden with like all those doors had been shut I just cut my own door it was like seeing sunlight this thing goes out and then it's like all of a sudden there's like kind of a thousand downloads and it's crazy I mean it's like to me I'm just like wow and I knew it you know like I said I knew it and so I was like, what's next? Fitz called his good friend, photographer James Q. Martin. They had done his story together about Tooth Rock, the tallest spire in the lower 48. And since then, James had put up a new route on it and wanted to free it. He had this crazy dynamic with his climbing partner. And I was like, that's, that's the story. And also, plus I was like, man, I want to go to the desert and go climbing. Basically, I kind of like figured out, I cobbled together the best like little field recording setup I could. Basically, I went and bought stuff at Goodwill. I mean, it was so ghetto. And I went down there and we freed this route and we told this story and it was about climbing, but it wasn't about climbing. It was about the relationships and the characters and the people and the experience and the bond. That was newsworthy. So then all of a sudden people started, like the Alpinist and Climbing Magazine started running stories about us free climbing this route. The Dirtbag Diary somehow got circulated around into that news piece. All of a sudden, it was like, there's tens of thousands of downloads going on. That was like when I knew, I was like, we can, we can keep this going. And Casey, my friend at Patagonia, was pretty, pretty excited about it too. Fitz released the third episode of The Diaries, Great Big Garage in the Sky, about his Australia trip. The phone rang. It was Casey with an offer to sponsor the show. And it was like all of a sudden, I was getting paid again to do what I loved. And I just remember that night so well. Like I remember just remember like drinking a beer in, in, the, in the living room and like just dancing around the room because I was like, I'm going to be able to write. I'm going to be able to do what I want to do. When he first started it and Patagonia said that they would sponsor it, I was like, well, this is cool. You know, this will, you know, for a year, maybe this is something that he'll be able to do. He has enough stories to sustain it for a year and it'll kind of be a fun project to do for a little while. The stories kept coming. A thousand words. In my head, I'm kicking myself like, God, why did I save so much money? That's insane. Should I save 500? Like, I don't know how to negotiate. I'm a kid sitting there who should be in his chemistry class. And then this light bulb went off in my head. I had this sort of this epiphany, this realization that, like, my entire life had just changed. They didn't mean $900 for the whole trip. They meant $900 per day. A brief moment in a beautiful place. Oh, and people just started laughing, man. Like, the shore was lined with people laughing at this point. And you guys didn't think to maybe stop and be like, this is a bad idea. No, it was a great idea. <laughs> you know, at this point, it was like, we need bigger bamboo. Help wanted. And once we 
once we got up into the Matterhorn, uh, it was truly as if no one had any idea what we were doing. <laughs> we, were, we were pretty out of control. A lifeline home. The the day that we lost uh, that one soldier was, I think, both Ryan and I, probably the hardest, uh, hardest thing we've gone through. Um, I actually remember, again, going from a lot of happiness to the extreme sadness in the blink of an eye. That story was like the embodiment of what the Dirtbag Diaries could be. As it was, it was about a bigger issue in our society, but it was through the lens of what we all know and love. The outdoors, climbing, friendship. And to me, that was like the perfect story. Like that was the story I always wanted to do, but could never do in the magazines. And, you know, it's hard to pick a favorite, but, but that, that's a pretty special piece. About a year after he started it, we sent out like our marketing survey to people and the responses that we got back from that just made me think that it would keep going, that there were enough people that were excited about it. And whether the fan base was gonna be really large, I didn't really know, but there were definitely, there was this ardent fan club that really loved it and was really passionate about it and wanted to do anything that they could to help to help keeping going, whether that was talking to Patagonia, submitting stories, telling friends. Yeah, and I mean, we started this basically right at the beginning of like one of the worst economic downturns in the economy and people, the outdoor industry basically had to justify every way it spent its money all of a sudden. There was definitely like one low point, like right after everything went to hell in 2008 where it was like it just wasn't clear whether or not we'd be able to keep it going. The economy was at a low point. Outdoor companies had to prepare for the worst. Every marketing expense had to be justified. The diaries was a bit outside the norm. You know we had some conversations and we knew how much. Becca and I knew and, and, and people at Patagonia they knew how much this mattered to this community. The trick was showing that, proving that this show mattered. Enter the fans of the Dirt Bay Diaries. It's this rad little community, and the funny thing is I didn't start it. Like, I totally, like, logged onto Facebook one day and bang, right there, I was like, boom, want to join fans of the Dirt Bay Diaries? And I was like, like, what the hell? Like, what, what is this? of a listener, Kestrel, the nickname, started it, and it's just this community, and, and it happened right about the time where it was like really unclear whether or not the Dirtbag Diaries would go, and, and so I just went to the group, and asked the group, I was like, you know, hey, would you be willing to, to tell people how much this means to you by leaving a comment on their page or calling customer service or doing whatever. And I thought, man, we'll be lucky if we get 10 people. And it was like, yeah, at that stage, that group was not that huge. It was maybe a couple hundred. And it was, it was like, in three days, there were a hundred comments on their blog, like on the Facebook, people like weighing in and saying what the diaries meant to them and why it was important. Right now, 
the people that listen to it own the show as much as I own it. I think for me, that was the moment where it's switched. And I think up until that point, I had been kind of doing it for me, you know? Like those, like I was telling these stories just because I wanted to get these stories out and then I just was like in love with the process of putting together the diaries. Uh, it was the first time where I think I was maybe even asking myself, am I gonna do this forever? Am I gonna do this for another year? Can I do this? Will I have the money to do this? Will, will like I have the support to do this? And then to find that group and see that, it was this sort of moment where all of a sudden, it wasn't just about doing it for myself, it was about doing it for the community. It was about helping others tell their stories too at that point. And I think right around then, that's when we launched the shorts. Like, this basically community storytelling project of people submitting stories and then redoing it. And that was, that's been one of the coolest parts of the diaries. New Belgium Brewing stepped forward to make the shorts possible. The community began broadcasting from their own closets with their own makeshift setups. We wanted to create a digital campfire simply because there really wasn't anything better at that stage in my life than sitting around a campfire with friends. And it just sort of seemed like common logic to move that into the digital realm. There's really no, no better feeling if you're a creative person than to know what you've done matters to somebody. And when the fans of the Dirtbag Diaries showed up, that was kind of like coalesced that in my mind. So you born In our lives, we all want to know that what we do matters, some way. We all want to feel like we have value, professionally, emotionally, as people, whatever. We'd like to believe that our actions and the way we spend our time has some sort of value. It can be different values, but we all want that. You know, paychecks from, from the Dirtbag Diaries are great, but the real moment that I understand what I do has value comes in the forms of interactions with listeners, of, of hearing people go through the same struggles that people in the diaries go through, and, and that maybe that sharing those stories in some way gives perspective. That in that moment when I began, I thought every opportunity had been taken away from me and this is the life I've been giving and I've failed as a writer, not because I wasn't a good writer, but because I basically, those opportunities that were there 10 years before were gone at that stage. And the truth was is that at that lowest point for being a writer, there were all the opportunities and they were all there. And that's what the diaries showed me, is that it was a matter of looking at your situation differently and seeing opportunity where you'd only seen closed doors beforehand.
we can figure out a way to make this a digital campfire that does not go out. Like, that's the goal. My name is Austin Sidak, and you've been listening to the Dirt Bay Diaries. Thanks, Austin. The music from today was some of my favorite cuts from artists we've featured through the years. Tracks by Publish the Quest, The Coast, Bomberay, Cars and Trains, Muddy Waters, Egads, Blue Scholars, and Carly Commando. You can find all the songs on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Today, I need to say a special thanks to my brother Walker, who has been with us almost right from the start and was responsible for the vast majority of artwork we've used through the years. There have been some incredibly creative title cards, and sometimes I almost take his creativity for granted. Almost. To see more of his work, visit Waltronic.net, or better yet, buy one of his diaries t-shirts. You can find the links from our site. Support the show comes from Patagonia. Their blog, The Cleanest Line, is also celebrating its fifth anniversary. It's the go-to spot for hilarious stories from Kelly Cordes and thoughtful updates on Patagonia's ongoing environmental initiatives like our common waters. Visit them online at patagonia.com. Kuat Racks also makes this show happen. They are the creators of a better bike rack. To check out their product, visit kuatracks.com. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing, who encourages you to follow your folly, just like I did. Thanks to the listeners as well. Seriously, this has been an incredible five years. It wouldn't have worked if it weren't for your input, your enthusiasm, your help reaching out to sponsors, and mostly you just sharing your excitement with other friends. Please keep on doing what you do. That was Austin Sidak. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. I'm only saving my breath The Northwest filled the lungs Heals the pain in my chest Clutch the moment A transfer in my hand Still listening Looking out the window To the gold and the grain And the sun might be shining But it's colder than it seems Cause the weather's dialectical There's no in between in walks an old soul, a First Nation native cat, chiseled like a totem pole, no words, as he stands and looks over us, he gets off and says, have a good day, you foreigners, I crack a smile one time for the acknowledgement, northbound now we start to pick up more college kids, they try to study on the ride, to make up for the fact that they probably kicked it hard last night, and I ponder if it's time to save up and get a car.